Martin Bayfield is a former professional rugby player. From 1991 to 1995, he played for England and the British and Irish Lions. And then from 2001 to 2011, he played Robbie Coltrane's body double in the Harry Potter film series. And today, he is a television presenter. Hi, I'm Nick Warren, and in this week's iLearn podcast, Martin Bayfield talks about changing roles, changing careers, pushing boundaries, and how to fill the frame. Hello, first quantum leaders. I'm Martin Bayfield. I'm a former rugby player, police officer, now actor, public speaker, and TV presenter. It really is a great pleasure to be asked to speak to you all through this podcast. I have to admit to feeling slightly in awe of adding my name to the illustrious list of those who've already addressed you, and I truly hope that my words might strike a distant chord. My podcast is about filling the frame. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? Well, picture a picture. Around it sits a frame. The picture, painting or otherwise, sits within the border of that frame. Consider the frame as your job description, your job title. At the very least, you as an individual should want to fill that frame to develop yourself and maximise your skills and output within that role. The frame, though, is not rigid and constricting. It is merely your title. If you fill every available corner, then that is fabulous, a job well done. For some, this is enough and should be applauded. For others, the picture needs to be bigger. A quick flex of the corporate will and crack The frame breaks and reforms as a bigger frame, a new job or role within the company, more responsibility, more status, whatever. Now, where do you go within that frame? Well, that is up to you and others, of course, but the trick is to fill the frame, not to sit in the middle. My working career has been a patchwork of crazy, fun, fulfilling jobs, and I wouldn't presume to take you for a wander down Amnesia Avenue and visit them all, But in an effort to better explain this analogy, I can point to various moments which illustrate my point. And I hope they make sense. I was a rugby player. Not my first job, police officer Lane's claim to that title. Indeed, for most of my rugby career, rugby was in fact amateur. But the oval ball game is perhaps the most eye-catching on my CV. I played for England between 1991 and 1996 and for the British and Irish Lions in 1993. You might now be thinking, okay, he may well have captained the side, here comes an insight into leadership. Nope, never captained anything, nothing to offer there. Okay, given his age, maybe an insight into how England won the Rugby Union World Cup. Sadly not, I'd been retired six years by the time Johnny Wilkinson booted England to glory over Australia in Sydney in 2003. Apologies to any Aussies listening. Right then, surely this man has at least scored a try for England. He can tell us about that. That's not too much to ask for. Well, actually it is. A big fat zero for me in the scoring column. If it is statistics that will win you over, I can offer you only this. Beechwood Park, under 12, school side, 1979-1980 season, played 10-1-10, during which time I scored 45 tries, which you should when you're 12 years old and six foot five inches tall. Now that is crazy tall for a kid and a huge advantage in a sport like rugby, but also an example of problems to come. Of course, I didn't realise it at the time. Towering over my opponents at school meant that rugby came easily to me. Too easy. 
I learned the skills required for my role within the team, carried them out well, ably abetted by a physique that grew to six foot ten by the age of 17, and enjoyed success which culminated in representing the England school side in 1985. In my little pond, I was a big fish swimming along quite happily. Thank you very much. But what was I actually learning? What was I actually contributing and how was I developing? Life sport on TV was not the 24-hour all-encompassing affair it is these days and the school calendar extended to no more than 10 or 15 games a year. As such, there was no education by osmosis. I was presented with this sport at the age of eight, discovered I could cope well with the basics and use my physical abilities to the best advantage. On the face of it, great. But I was already beginning to sit comfortably within my frame. Fine for now, in fact, fine for some time. Senior rugby came, playing for the police side, then more senior teams, until eventually England came calling and I became an international player. Everything I ever wanted, I had arrived. Fast forward to 1996, the 14th of February to be precise, and I'm driving home from an England training camp for the last time. I've been dropped from the national side to face Ireland in the Five Nations and to make matters worse, take that have just announced they're to split. How much bad news can one man take in one day? I'm a jumble of emotions, mainly anger and a sense of injustice. How dare they drop me? I'll show them. I'll be back. But I didn't. And I wasn't. And to tell you the truth, I knew right then that I was done. Finished as an England player. Being dropped stung like crazy, but what hurt most was knowing I could have prevented my own fall. I could have been better, and I certainly could have put up a bigger fight to keep my place. So add embarrassment to those emotions. Rugby has a rich history, but in 1996 it was emerging kicking and screaming into the new world of professional sport with all the rewards and dangers that brings. I'd taken a sabbatical from the police force to pursue a professional career, and quickly learned a very harsh lesson. Play badly as an amateur, and you get dropped to the second team. Underperform as a pro, and you lose your job. Brutal. Yet the answers to my problems were there to be found. But in the main, to find the answers, you need to ask questions. And I didn't. I felt that what had worked before would work now. In the amateur era, I had my routine. I knew when to work, when to train, when to relax. Professionalism tore all of that up and I became unsettled and in many ways found the new game and its new systems boring. If I'd asked questions, I would have discovered the answers were all around me. Experts were there to be quizzed, solutions to be found. I now needed to look at a broader picture beyond the narrow window of my previous existence to extend and improve myself. But routine, complacency, comfort prevented all of that. I had stagnated. How many of you listening now fully understand the role you play within FQM? Not just the role you play within your team or sector, but how your role affects others further up or down the ladder, either in the same building or across the four continents where you operate. I can't see you all, but I can visualise frantic nodding right now. And I'm sure you're all absolutely right to do so. But when change comes, how quick are you to adapt? Does a fear of appearing stupid in others' eyes prevent you from raising a querying hand? 
Could upskilling knowledge in one seemingly unconnected area actually benefit you and others? You'll almost certainly have the answer to that most direct of questions, what do you do? But is what you do enough? Sport taught me that the very best are relentless in their pursuit of excellence, in their desire to be better. On the face of it, in the eyes of the spectator, these same individuals often seem to glide effortlessly through a game, their elevated performances put down solely to natural talent, a gift from above. The talent is certainly there, but it is hard graft and unbreakable commitment that burnishes it to a brilliant luster. Indeed, there is many a performer whose wholehearted efforts outshine the talents of the apparently more talented. In 1998, my rugby career came to a shuddering halt, two ruptured vertebrae in my neck, sort of that. I spent two years as an academy coach, a role I feel sure I could have grown into at another club. But seeing my former teammates preparing for a game as I sat by, gaining weight and resentment rapidly, was eating away at me. Time for change, and it came from an unexpected quarter. In 2000, production started on the Harry Potter films, with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone slated for production, at least in studios. Was I aware of this? Absolutely not. Had I heard of the boy wizard? Only on the news. So it came as some surprise when my phone rang in the Academy office at Northampton Saints and a man's voice asked if I would be interested in trying out for the role of Robbie Coltrane's body double. The fabulous Scottish actor was to play Hagrid, the half-giant, and they needed someone big to play his double and create the illusion of size. Now, this had all the trappings of a wind-up, but after a while I was convinced of the plan, travelling to Leavesden a few days later for a screen test. I passed this and was offered the job. Seems obvious now to have taken the job, but at the time I had no idea where it might lead, and my current role, whilst unfulfilling, did pay the mortgage. Did I stay put or take my chance in the movies? Well, I handed in my resignation the next day. I entered a world... I knew nothing about, and perhaps more importantly, a world where very few people knew anything about me. I was back at the beginning, the rookie in the workplace, and I immediately felt at home. Here was another team to be part of, as I had been with the police and with my rugby mates, and I was going to milk every moment from it. I knew that here I simply had to learn the heartbeat, learn how this juggernaut operated, Otherwise, I'd be lost and the journey would be a short one. My role was simple. The frame, a small one. Or a big fat suit and a sculpted face of Robbie Coltrane fixed to a fiberglass skull which slipped over my head like a crash helmet. The whole setup pushed me to seven foot six and allowed the production to film certain scenes with me in place, catching views from a distance but no closer. The sculpted head was good, but it wouldn't bear scrutiny. The young stars of the film were very young and inexperienced. During one particular scene, Dan Radcliffe, who played, of course, Harry Potter, was talking to me as Hagrid the Giant. I just stood there with Dan using me as a reference point. He said his lines, whilst a junior producer read the Giant's lines from offset. Now, this wasn't working. The 11-year-old Radcliffe was focusing on where the lines were coming from, not on me, stood directly in front of him. Also, by not interacting with him directly, my movements weren't natural. So during a lull in filming, I spoke with the head of Creature Effects and my team leader. 
I paid the price of not being inquisitive and pushy during my rugby career, of not seeking to better myself within a seemingly comfortable position. I would not make that mistake again. It was time to crack the frame. I volunteered to learn all of Robbie Coltrane's lines so that Dan and the other actors could interact directly with me. Everyone in the process had a voice. Senior and junior animatronic designers, sound technicians, everyone was heard. There was a genuine buzz that something cool could happen. Those are the feelings I now love in any work environment. We're onto something here. The reaction from the director? Fine, we'll try it. If it doesn't work straight up, we bin the idea and move on. Well, that night I stayed up until the early hours learning all the lines for the next scene, which just happened to be the longest in the film. At the end of a long day's shooting, the director, Chris Columbus, patted me on the back. Nice work, big fella. And moved on to more important matters. As I left the studios for the night, I was stopped by security who exchanged my pass for a new one. Gone was Martin Bayfield, extra to be replaced by Martin Bayfield, actor. From then on, instead of driving to the studios, I was collected by a chauffeur. Meals now came from the private menu, and most important of all, I had my own Winnebago. One film became eight. Hagrid the Giant went high-tech with a new animatronic head designed and fabricated at great expense in time for the second film, allowing me to appear in far more scenes and much greater close-up. I'd asked my questions, I'd inquired as to how I could make the process better, and as a result, had better myself, and others had supported me. That is so important. The challenge refreshed and inspired me, put a smile back on my face. But it was the harsh lessons I had learned as my rugby career faltered that gave me the determination to excel in a new environment. I always knew my role. I always knew I was the acting and stunt double. But I was the best acting and stunt double I could possibly be. I pushed the boundaries around me as far as I possibly could and as such maximised my input into the production process. Ten years of pretending to be a giant. What's not to like? Now there are 20,000 of you at First Quantum Minerals. Each person will have a frame around them. The size of that frame, the status or job description is not what is important. What matters is the effort and personal industry within each individual allow each individual to flourish and better themselves and the team will function beautifully. Thank you for listening and my very best wishes to you all. That's it for this week's episode. Everybody involved gave their time for free. For future episodes, you can subscribe to iLearn on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening and see you next time.